I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick an obscure topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Evil Within, the straight-to-DVD horror movie that killed his creator. What is The Evil Within? It's a 2017 horror movie written and directed by Andrew Getty, the grandson of the notorious oil tycoon J. Paul Getty that took 14 years to make and sent Getty into a multi-year spiral of deep depression, obsession, and meth addiction. After 14 years of slaving over the production of the film, Getty was found dead in his Los Angeles mansion under mysterious circumstances before he could ever finish it. So how did it get released? And what about this film caused Getty's obsession and untimely death? Life and Times of the Gettys. Act one, Life and Times of the Gettys. <laughs> we just get a cease and desist from Ira Glass. Act one, Ira Glass is now hosting Deep Cuts. I've copyrighted this cadence. I'm Ira Glass, <laughs> and today, <laughs> I kind of forgot to do how to do Casey Kasem for a minute. What is it? Is I'm Casey Kasem. No, hold on. Take it back. Okay. Do Rod Sterling. We're about to enter the Twilight Zone. Now drink three martinis. Yep. I'm Gishy Gisham. And today we're counting down the top ten times. Evil Within was fucking crazy. Now drink eight liters of water and wait for an hour. Obsession. Unwillingness to compromise. In 1995, a 19-year-old Boy Scout from Michigan with no scientific training named David Hahn built a nuclear reactor in his backyard simply because he wanted to. He nearly blew up his entire neighborhood and might have succeeded if the FBI hadn't gotten wind of it and stopped him from going any further. In 2015, a 32-year-old man was found dead in an internet cafe in Taiwan after a three-day non-stop gaming binge. What causes a person to become consumed by a singular pursuit so pure that they disregard their own health and safety? What drives certain people to fixate on something to a point that nothing else matters to them anymore? What turns a passion into a demon? Andrew Getty understood this level of obsession more than most, but we never got to understand about his demons or what summoned them into his life. Andrew Rourke Getty was born on July 1st, 1967 in San Francisco, California. The grandson of J. Paul Getty, one of the richest and most notorious oil tycoons in American history. When his grandfather died, Andrew inherited a sizable amount of his fortune. And in addition to doing philanthropy work and starting an investment company, he decided that he wanted to invest that money into making a very personal horror film about the recurring night terrors he was experiencing. But before we get into that, Let's talk a bit more about his grandfather. J. Paul Getty Sr. was the founder of the Getty Oil Company. You might recognize him as the guy who was originally played by Kevin Spacey in Ridley Scott's 2017 film, All the Money in the World, but then completely digitally replaced to be played by Christopher Plummer after it was revealed that Kevin Spacey was an actual monster. If you're a true crime aficionado, you probably associate his name with something entirely different. On July 10th, 1973, J. Paul Getty's grandson and Andrew Getty's cousin, J. Paul Getty III, was kidnapped and held for ransom at the age of 16. The kidnapper secreted the young heir away to a cave in Calabria, Italy, and demanded that his family pay 17 million, roughly 100 million in today's money, for his release. Um, did you know about this whole story? The, yes, I did. Yeah, I uh, I grew through periods where I'm kind of obsessed with stuff like this, like like the Frank Sinatra Jr. kidnapping or this yeah. one. I wouldn't say that I'm like a true crime buff in the way that some people are like obsessed with serial killers or true crime or whatever. But um, I think 
anybody that is, has made it this far into the podcast is, is aware of the fact that I'm, I have peculiar interests and I tend to follow them down winding bizarre paths. And so, yeah, I, I, I was really, I was really into interested in the Getty family for a while and the, the Getty curse and the, the, you know, a bunch of stuff about them, which I won't say cause we're about to get into it. Yeah. The boy's father, John Paul Getty Jr. Asked his dad, J Paul senior for money, but despite being one of the top five richest men in the country at the time, worth $7.2 billion in today's money. J. Paul Sr. refused, at one point telling his son that he had 14 other grandchildren, and if he paid a ransom for one of them, he'd suddenly find himself with 14 more kidnapped grandchildren. Dude didn't give a fuck. Zero fucks given! Yep. You don't get to $7.2 billion without abandoning a few grandchildren? Um, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, uh, if I had $7.2 billion, what do I need... 14.0 grandchildren for. Yeah. I have $7.2 billion. That's empirically better than 14.0 grandchildren. Yeah. I mean, that's why you invest in multiple grandchildren. Yeah. yeah you you got to diversify your grandchildren. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. When the market crashes, one of those grandchildren gets kidnapped or whatever. <laughs> no sweat, bruh. Yeah. You got 13 other ones. After demands weren't met, the kidnappers began to get more serious. In November of 1973, the Getty family received a package from the kidnappers containing a lock of the boy's hair and one of his ears. They demanded 3.2 million, 19 million in today's money, or else they would continue mutilating and eventually kill the boy. A note included in the package read, This is Paul's first ear. If within 10 days the family still believes that this is a joke, a joke mounted by him, then the other ear will arrive. Oh, okay. There was a thing where initially in the beginning of the kidnapping, they... His family kind of suspected that he was faking the kidnapping mm, just, to, just to get more money. Yeah. Wow. Man, that is so dark. Like, I can't really relate to, I mean, I can relate because it's their people and it's human. The human experience is somewhat <coughs> universal, but also like, I can't really, it's very difficult to put myself in the position of someone who has that level of mistrust of their own inner circle, you know? Yeah. Like it, it makes sense. Like when you logically think about it, like. Maybe someone would do that if they had a need for a hundred million dollars, and they were like, oh, "I'm just gonna not show up to Christmas dinner, and then say that I got kidnapped, and I'll get a Chris hundred million dollars." But like, that's just so beyond my realm of. I'm just trying to afford to be able to eat like a dollar millionaire. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I mean, just the just the ripple effect of having that amount of money and like everything it does. I mean, even just this in general, like getting yeah. getting kidnapped. Yeah. Like it just it just has this ripple effect. It's like it holistically alters every aspect of your life. Yeah. And and, and no matter your, what your relationships are with any of those people, you know, you see it a lot with lottery winners, with people when they become famous, like it just reshapes your reality in both a positive and a negative way. Yeah. Like you you're just not the same surroundings. You're not in the same surroundings, which is so wild. Yeah. This is Paul's first year. If within 10 days the family still believes that this is a joke mounted by him, then the other ear will arrive. In other words, he will arrive in little bits. So certainly his grandfather ponied up the money after the kidnappers cut off his ear, right? Especially since they lowered the ransom from the initial $17 million to three. That's a steal. Nope. The oil miser still refused, and J. Paul Jr. had to beg him before he finally agreed to pay only $2.2 million. Why 2.2 million? Because it was the maximum amount of money allowed to be tax deductible. The kicker? He merely lent his son the money, who was responsible for paying it back at 4% interest. God, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean, why even why even have the a family if like you li- like this isn't like a, a an asshole or like just a kind of cruel guy 
This is like, why do you even have this family if you give that little of a shit about them? What, what, you don't, you weren't required to have 14 grandchildren. You weren't required to have five kids. Like, why did you do this? If you literally, if you, if you care that little that you're just like, fuck him. I, I don't want to give a single red cent to these people. I don't care if he dies. I don't care how it affects you. Like, why, why even have the family? I don't know, man. I don't know. J. Paul III was eventually released after the ransom was paid, but he was in extremely poor health. His wound from the severed ear had become infected, and the kidnappers had pumped him full of penicillin and brandy in an attempt to keep the infection down and numb the pain. Despite being free, he was traumatized and now a full-blown alcoholic at the age of 16. I mean, this this part, it, it can't be overstated how fucked up this is. Like, they sewed up the side, like, they cut off his... Basically, this, not the full side of his head, but they, like, cut off around the ear, and then they, like... Tried to sew it up, but none of them were surgeons or anything, so it, like, collapsed in on itself and, like, got crazy infected. Like, the side of his head just, like, ballooned. Yeah, and, like, he was basically just chained inside of a cave. Yeah. For however long this was. I forget the exact time frame, but... Months at the least. Yeah, even if it was a couple weeks. Like, this was abject torture yeah. for this kid. Yeah, and not just psychological, but physical as well. Yeah. Like, it's so fucking crazy. And the, the nuts part about it is that it's not even, like, motivated by any real sense of tangible animus or discernible hatred or, like, you know, it'd, it'd be different if these people were, like, the 1%. Like, you you can understand a zealot, you know what I mean? You can understand someone who's lost their way and embraced some bizarre ideological campaign. Uh, J. Paul III never quite recovered. He remained in poor health and an alcoholic and drug addict all the way up until 1981 when he suffered an alcohol-induced stroke that rendered him a quadriplegic. He eventually died on February 5th, 2011, at the age of 54. Uh, the public labeled the family as being afflicted with the Getty curse. In the same year J. Paul III was kidnapped, one of his uncles committed suicide by taking an overdose of sleeping pills and stabbing himself in the stomach with a barbecue fork. His father became hopelessly addicted to heroin. Can we, can we, uh, can we just talk about the fact... Okay, taking sleeping pills. A fairly normal way to end your life. If you're yeah. in pain or you're depressed and there's you're looking for a way out... I mean, obviously, I think that everybody has the potential to... Um, move through those dark patches and find light on the other side. I'm not yeah. I'm not saying I want anybody to take their own life. But if you were going to do that, stabbing yourself in the stomach with a fucking barbecue fork seems really arbitrarily messy and painful and not... Not only that, but he did it twice. He stabbed himself twice. <sighs> wow, man, that is just so And dark. I couldn't really find any, like, confirmation on, like, which thing killed him. Like, there wasn't enough, there wasn't a lot of information about, all that, all that was established is that he took an overdose of sleeping pills and then stabbed himself twice with a barbecue fork as, like, a, as an insurance was he, policy. Was he, because he wasn't trying to wake himself up. Like, he wasn't like, oh, I'm drifting off to sleep. I need to wake myself up. I'm going to call for help and then stab myself with a barbecue fork I have no idea there's there's not any more information than that it's Man. basically taken from an interview with one of the other family members where they were talking to a reporter and they just told them like yeah he uh he died because of an incident with a barbecue fork and the guy was like what and he was like he's he stabbed himself twice and a barbecue just so and he, the- like I mean you could tell that he was like sort of embarrassed like you know it's like talking about a family member killing themselves it's like a very sort of it's very taboo it's kind of like a shameful thing that people don't really like to talk about so this reporter is kind of like dragging the information out of him and he says he's he just basically says these things but he doesn't really 
go into detail or clarify like what exactly happened. Man, that is so fucking weird. John Paul Getty III's father became hopelessly addicted to heroin and other drugs and struggled with it before finally getting clean in 1984. His wife, however, wasn't as lucky and died of a heroin overdose. Years later, in 1999, J. Paul Sr.'s other son, Gordon Getty, Andrew Getty's father, was exposed for having a second family he'd kept secret from his wife and children for decades. J. Paul Getty Sr. died in 1976, and in 1984, his company was sold to Texaco. The money was split equally among the entire family, including Andrew Getty, who was 17 at the time. It's not known exactly how much Andrew got, but his father inherited $750 million to be split amongst his immediate family. So what's a boy to do after inheriting several million dollars from his miserly, evil, oil-bearing grandpa? Well, we wouldn't find that out until 2002. In 2002, Andrew, an oil heir with a small investment company paid for by family money, suddenly out of nowhere went into production on an independent horror movie. It was called The Storyteller and was meant to be an intensely personal depiction of the traumatizing night terrors Andrew had been experiencing since he was a kid, mixed with the story of David Berkowitz, aka The Son of Sam, a notorious serial killer who terrorized New York City in the mid-1970s, killing eight confirmed people and claiming that a demon in the form of his neighbor's dog made him do it. The story was to be told through the lens of an experimental, psycho-surreal horror thriller full of some of the most unique and unsettling visual imagery you've ever seen in a film. The central question the movie asks about these dreams is, what if they're not dreams at all, but visions being fed to you by some dark entity living deep within your subconscious? Ryan Redner, a post-production producer on the film, said about Getty's exploration of nightmares in the movie. When he was young, he would have these really powerful, sick, twisted dreams, and they were so shocking that he didn't think that they'd come from him. The synopsis of the film is... The mentally handicapped 30-year-old Dennis lives with his older brother John. When John decorates his room with an antique mirror... Dennis has nightmares and finds evil in his reflection. His reflected image forces him to kill people, including his beloved ice cream seller Susan and Dennis, and Dennis becomes a serial killer. Meanwhile, John's girlfriend Lydia decides to move in together with John and Dennis, ignoring the threat of her brother-in-law. I feel like that synopsis like so under represents what the movie actually is because like it just defies explanation. Yeah. Like this explains the movie similarly to that one notorious uh, synopsis about the Wizard of Oz where it's like a, a girl like murders a woman and then like goes to find her sister and kill her too or something like that. Like, yeah. it's like that where it's like it kind of explains what the movie's about, but like it doesn't really actually explain what the movie's really about because he kind of can't explain it. Longtime TV actor Frederick Kohler was cast as Dennis while Sean Patrick Flannery was cast as his brother John and Dina Meyer as John's girlfriend Lydia. Dina fucking Meyer from Starship Troopers, Johnny Mnemonic, and basically all the Saw movies, Dina Meyer. Dina Meyer from the co-ed shower scene in Starship Troopers, Dina Meyer. Also, she was in Birds of Prey, bro. She was the Oracle in Birds of Prey. Was she? I mean, I, I didn't see Birds of Prey, but I was very excited to see her in this because yeah, I mean, I I loved her in Starship Troopers, and I never really saw her in anything else. And I and like, she's in, I don't like the Saw movies, so it's like, eh. Star Trek too. She's been in some Star Trek. She's yeah, been, she's in uh, what is it? Star Trek. Uh, she's in. I didn't I didn't write it down, but she's in Voyager, I think, as an alien. Yeah. Um, I don't remember. Well, she's in one of the Berman era shows as like an alien in a, in an episode or two. Michael Berryman was cast as the true form of Dennis's inner darkness that haunts his dreams and compels him to kill. Uh, and that this, you know, once again, this is kind of like falling short of really explaining the movie, but 
you know, as the movie gets into being crazier and crazier and really delving into the dream logic of everything, basically, eventually, the Dennis character, he starts talking to himself in a mirror. Which does not do it justice at all to say he starts talking to himself in a mirror. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Ferret Collar is amazing in this movie, like as a performer, Mm -hmm. like the, you know problematic aspects of having a mentally handicapped serial killer aside. Yeah, like, I mean, that's that's why, like, it teeter, like, I, I'm going to say this later, so I'm just kind of repeating what I'm, like, I'm just anticipating something I wrote, but it, that's why it just comes so close to a line, because if he was even slightly worse of an actor, it would be so offensive. Mm-hmm. And it still kind of maybe is, but, mm-hmm. like, he is very good at it, so it, it feels authentic. Yeah. Uh, the problematic part of it comes into just the concept of like, oh, he's a mentally handicapped person and then he ends up becoming a murderer, it, yeah. you know, but uh, but uh, yeah, he, he you know, he, he does it very well uh, and he works very well with what he was given in terms of a script to the point where it just really it just it, it feels just right on this on the razor's edge of like, how do I feel about this? I mean, I was riding that 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 razor's edge the whole time, man. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. But then he would win me over. Yeah, there's like a, well, whenever he wasn't on screen, I'd be like, "This is so, this is so not okay." And then he'd come on screen doing his thing, and I'd be like, "Wow, this is so convincing! Look at this guy; he's well, amazing." There, there's a crazy sort of like twist of the movie where the movie starts and it's a dream, his really terrifying dream that's being narrated by him. And so you watch the first five minutes of the movie, and you're just like, you know, what is going on here? What's happening, you kind of, there's, and we'll talk about this more later, but a lot of the visual effects are, like, just really cool and really interesting and unique and kind of just, like, mesmerizing. And you're just, like, you, you we're going to get much more deep into this. But the way that the, the movie is almost hypnotic in how it just delivers visual after visual and you're just kind of left reeling because you see something and you're just like, how the fuck is it doing that? And then, like... You don't have another, you don't even have a moment to breathe before it shows you another crazy fucking thing that you don't understand how it's being done. And so this whole opening sequence, you're just like, what the fuck is this? What is happening? What is that? How'd they do that? What is, what is this person here for? How is this being accomplished? And right whenever you're kind of starting to like get into it and kind of, or at least for me, it was like, this is kind of cool. It just immediately hard left turns and it like because in the dream he uh, because he's in his own mind, he doesn't have the mental handicap. So the movie opens up for the first five minutes where he's just sort of, uh, you know, talking, speaking in a uh, in his in his normal voice. Uh, and, and he has a very you know extensive vocabulary and the, yeah. the, the whole the character is supposed to be written to be a genius. So, you know, there's very kind of purple prosaic voiceover descriptions of things. Yeah. And then he, it cuts to him in real life. And then it's just like, it's just a hard left turn of like, Oh, this is happening. Um, and it's, it's, you really bump up against it because it's, it's that combination of not really knowing how you feel about this depiction of this. And the fact that it just comes out of nowhere where you think that this person is one way and then just out of nowhere, he's this other way. And then, like you said, the whole movie, you're just kind of like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah. And you, you kind of never really figure out, like, what side of the of it you land on. Honestly, if the whole cast was unknowns or if the whole cast was unknowns, I would feel differently about the movie. I don't know how necessarily I would feel, 
but I would feel differently about it because Sean Patrick Flannery and Dina Meyer are so out of place in the movie. Like they both feel like actors being paid to show up months apart, do yeah. some stuff and then go home. Whereas Michael Berryman is creepy as fuck. And also I love Michael Berryman. Yeah. If you don't know him, he's the guy from The Hills Have Eyes and he's in multiple Star Treks. He's in Star Trek 4. He's in an episode of TNG. He's in, uh, he always plays monsters and aliens. He's got a very specific look. Uh he has alopecia, I believe, yeah. so he doesn't have hair on his head. His face is also a very specific shape and um, plays movie bad guys a lot. And he's just super cool in the movie. Like, the he's it's funny because he's actually not given that much to do. Like, he kind of just shows up and is kind of creepy. Well, I mean, so, you know, uh, jumping off of that, this is one of those things that is just really hard to convey because, uh, like I said, the Dennis, the main character, he starts sort of talking to himself in the mirror and his sort of real outside world self has this men- mental handicap. And then his mirror self that talks to him doesn't. And it's like sort of speaking to himself directly through his head. So he does not, doesn't have this, this handicap. And so this sort of insidious inner voice is talking to him as his own reflection in the mirror, but then sometimes very inconsistently and really with no real logic applied to it, he becomes um, he becomes the other the Michael Berryman yeah he, demon he, he becomes that yeah and it's like it's never really fully explained, but it's kind of implied that that's his real form. Yeah. And he's some kind of demon. Well, you also... He's presenting himself as him. He's, like, presenting himself as, like, I'm you. I'm talking... You're talking to yourself. I'm the real you. But then it's kind of implied that that's... He's lying to him, and he's really this other demon that's... Yeah. That's Michael Berryman. Yeah. And just randomly... And- well, because the opening of the movie is is really creepy like the michael berryman demon guy comes into the room where dennis is sleeping wakes him up pins him to the bed face down attaches a zipper to the back of his head leading all the way down his spine to his buttocks unzips his back and puts himself inside like a suit which is awesome. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, it's not practically done. They didn't actually unzip a dude, but you know what I mean? Like there's a practical dummy suit that they intercut between the actors on the bed and then this plastic suit that Michael Berryman is like jimmying inside of. Yeah. And we're, we're really going to get into that later on and really talk about that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the, it's, it's one of the many, um, not just special effects, but one of the many horror set pieces that in and of itself, just that one thing, it's incredibly unique. You've never seen anything like it, and you've never seen it done the way it's done, and you really can't wrap your mind around... There's something about the visual effects in this movie that don't feel... They don't feel like the typical type of practical effects that we're used to from watching movies from horror movies from the 80s and 90s, and they don't feel like modern, low-budget, like, after-effects... Yeah. Visual effects. Yeah. They they feel like a different thing and you can never quite figure out like what is happening. Sometimes it's really purposeful. Like when when Mike, the Michael Berryman demon guy in that opening sequence is on top of Dennis, he literally mounts him and you can see one. It's extremely sexual, but you can see that Michael Berryman's not wearing pants like you can see his whole hip and leg and like. You know what Michael Berryman's nether regions are doing. Yeah. And then later in the movie, (laughs) later in the movie, there's a sequence where he's holding a version of Dennis hostage, like grabbing his neck. 
And you can see that Michael Berryman's wearing pants. Like you can see them in the corner of the frame. It's just like a little like meep of his like belt loop. And it's so, it kind of adds to the surrealness of the movie where it's like some of it is purposeful and some of it is just like, wow, you guys are like three idiots with a camera. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, it kind of makes it better to me because I, I love noble failures. Like that's kind of like my, all my favorite movies are like their attempts at something that get really close to greatness and then just kind of belly flop. And that's kind of what this movie is sort of. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that it never even gets anywhere near a greatness, but like, I love that, that Andrew Getty, I mean, I obviously I don't love that it ended up like ostensibly driving him crazy and having him die. Like I, I know art is worth someone's death, Yeah, but I love that you can feel that he was trying to like, not even just the maximum of his ability, but like 130%, you know, he was like, this is going to be my fucking legacy, which honestly it's kind of, I mean. It is. Yeah. The rest of the cast doesn't really matter because most of them are only in the movie for a couple scenes and their characters aren't particularly important for reasons that we'll get to later. And they Um, also are just like bizarrely constructed. Like people will just walk into rooms and be like, oh, hey, I was just talking about you. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, you weren't. We've been with you for this like five minutes. You weren't talking about anybody. Yeah. Literally every other like Michael Berryman, uh, uh, the main character, Dennis, I forget. I just John and his, Lydia are the other two. Yeah, but but those those two characters, um, and then uh, John and Lydia, uh, the brother and his girlfriend, they are the only characters that number one matter and are consistent in uh, their presence in the movie. And even to a certain degree, the brother and the girlfriend are a little shaky in that regard. The rest of the characters. They might as well just be fucking NPCs in a in yeah. a in a in a role playing game, and and it, and it contributes to this really weird, surreal, dreamlike state, where every other character that it it feels like they live in this weird vacuum, where like they're the only four real people in the world, and then everybody else are just these like empty shells of people that are inconsistent in their personality and their presence. And it makes it really feel creepy. It also sometimes is that and sometimes just feels like Andrew Getty didn't know how to fucking write a script and didn't know that you need to set things up before you pay them off. Oh, 100 like, percent. I'm not even saying that any of this was purposeful. Yeah. I think it was maybe completely accidental. Like like every character moment in the movie is a payoff. Yeah. Every every moment is a payoff, regardless of if there's a setup, which 90 percent of the time there is no fucking setup. Yeah. So it's just like if everybody walked Something just in, happens and it's a revelation and it's like, where the fuck did this come from? There's a part where they're driving down the street and they're like, we don't know anybody. All of our friends are gone. We don't know anybody. Oh, look, there's John. We've never met John before. And they get out of the car. And, and like, it's even weirder that he's like a recognizable like character actor. Yeah, he's like a you, 90s character actor. seen in things. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, all of the actors are almost that way. Like, the Sklar brothers are in this movie. The two brothers that are the the twins from Terminator are in this movie. Well, one of them is in the movie, but we don't see the other twin, which is really weird. Which is crazy, and I have this in the outline, but, like... The 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 Sklar brothers thing reminded me of the 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 scene in Terminator Two with the twins because you you see these two cops come into the room and you're like why is one of these guys a Sklar brother and then there's a scene later on where the cop the Sklar brother he goes into a room and then his reflection comes out of the mirror at him and kills him and you're like oh that's why 
because they needed they that used guy the twin the, yeah. to do this visual effect in camera. Yeah. And it immediately reminded me of that scene in Terminator 2 where they have this, uh, the, the T-1000 twins, yeah. take the form of the of the security guard and kill him. And they used a twin to be able to yeah. do that in camera instead of yeah. doing no yeah the other the other cop is literally that guy which is so strange yeah yeah it really is there was somebody else in the movie that I noticed too that I couldn't place but I recognized her face from somewhere do you remember when they're in the restaurant uh, which I know we're gonna get to later but I'm the restaurant and the the waitress that comes over and takes Dennis's order. She has like one line and they like have a reveal on her face like she's supposed to be somebody. Do you rec- did you recognize that actress? Um I did I I don't think at the time I I did, but uh cuz it was so weird and the way they did her I close up and I definitely like, remember and noticed and took note of the fact that I mean it's it's one of the million examples of this in the movie where something is like focused on in a way where just dramatically and structurally it feels like the movie's telling you that it's important or of note, but you just can't see what they're trying to show you. Yeah. The movie went into full swing of production in 2002, and immediately the cast and crew realized this wasn't your typical low-budget horror movie bankrolled by a rich kid who got the wild hair up his ass to go into the movie biz. Getty was an extreme perfectionist, often spending hours on shots and meticulously setting up in-camera special effects based on an obsessive vision he had in his head that nobody else quite understood. They also quickly noticed how personal the story was was to Andrew. Kohler, the actor who played the main character, Dennis, once said during an interview, Essentially, I'm playing Andrew. When he talked about the construction of the script, he would often say that a lot of the content came from his own personal dreams. He was battling a lot of demons. The crew also quickly realized that there were some serious issues plaguing the production as a result of Getty's obsessive perfectionism and major inexperience as a filmmaker. For one, Andrew was dumping a ton of money into extravagant and unnecessary things. He bought millions of dollars worth of film equipment that he could have easily rented for a fraction of the price, which is more typical for an independent film production. He spent tons of money building his own unique camera rigs in order to capture shots he had in his mind, and he even paid to have an entire carnival moved out into the middle of a desert in California for the opening scene of the movie. This whole thing, it it, it kind of reminds me of what we talked about in the uh, Edward Stratemeyer episode, where we talked about this idea that the story of Edward Stratemeyer doesn't quite fit into the narrative tropes that it should, as if it were the movie version of it, where it's like, oh, this should be about this evil businessman who just like wasn't creative and he was just uh severely underpaying a bunch of ghostwriters to capitalize off their creativity to make money but it didn't quite fit into that paradigm because he really was writing the books he still was massively taking advantage of people but it just didn't quite fit because he was creative and he did write the books and he only sort of expanded his network with these ghostwriters whenever he reached his own personal capacity for writing. And then his daughter ended up kind of being a similar thing. And this reminds me of that, where this should be a story about this like rich kid who bought his way into making a movie. And he kind of did in the sense that like this movie wouldn't have existed if he hadn't just thrown money at us at everything. But it doesn't, it doesn't neatly fit into that package because in addition to sort of jumping ahead in line and buying his way into this, he also was one of the most obsessively perfectionist filmmakers, you know, that I've ever really seen covered from a behind the scenes standpoint. Like he was meticulously consumed with executing a vision. Yeah, I was reading an interview with 
Frederick Kohler where he was saying that after the movie stopped production for the umpty dump time that he went over to the the house because they the, the whole movie is basically shot in Andrew Getty's mansion yeah um and so he went over to his house to shoot some pickups or something also we should just drill down into the fact that Frederick Kohler graduated high, graduated college at whatever 22 and then almost immediately booked this job and has since gone on to do movies and TV. He was in all the Death Race sequels. He was in Oz. He was in um, a bunch of stuff. And he's always kind of like quirky supporting character number three. Dude is a 45-year-old man now. Yeah. And speaking of which, I'm just going to I'm gonna foreshadow something that we're going to sort of reveal later on. But just to quickly foreshadow it. As we've established, this movie went into production in 2002. Yeah, 2002. And this movie, if you're keeping score, came out in 2017. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. He uh and he he went over to his house and he went and like looked in, you know, he was trying to get something to eat or something, went in the kitchen and saw that Andrew Getty was living on cereal. He was just living on cereal because he was spending all of his money on the movie. Like he yeah. was saving his money to build these camera rigs, to build these animatronic, you know, uh, puppets. Like it's to build something later in the movie, which we have to talk about. Like yes. it's so nuts that it it is a rich dude that made a movie, but it's not really. It's it's almost like this guy. I kind of like I feel an immense amount of kinship with him. Like. If I had $6 million, I would do this too. I would be yeah. driven crazy by a fucking project that I was working on that never ended. Yeah, this is like, what if Orson Welles... Was less talented. ...didn't possess the level of genius that Orson Welles possessed. He possessed a percentage of it or some a aspects of it. And he went to make um, his Don Quixote movie. But he was given as much money as he wanted that's like kind of what this is yeah it's almost that it's kind like of, both it like yeah, what, lives in both worlds yeah there's like there's like an art art school phrase that constraints define the canvas so like you know if you if you know you have to make a thing in three weeks and you have to do it on a six and a half by 11 piece of paper it's going to be a much different piece than if you're given a year and you can use any dimensions you want and that's kind of like it really is. It feels like he kind of almost is a victim of his own infinite canvas. Yeah. You know, during one brief scene that takes place inside of a nightmarish undersea themed pizza place that seems vaguely reminiscent of a Chuck E. Cheese. There is an entire animatronic band playing on a stage in the background of the scene. And Getty literally designed and built the functioning animatronic robot band himself. And it held up the production for several months. They're, they're, they go into the, to the restaurant. Dennis is really excited about it. Um, you know, cause he's childlike in nature and he's like, oh, these, uh, these, you know, puppets are so cool. And like the camera pans over and there's like a giant five foot octopus puppet that's playing drums. And there's like a, a whole band, but the octopus is so cool. And he's like, how do they work? How do they work? And John like explains, like you can tell that wasn't in the original script. And Andrew Getty was like, these motherfuckers need to know how much work I put into this piece of shit. Yeah, he he wrote a thing into the script because he literally was did it. And so he had this knowledge of like, this is how this actually works. I'm just going to work this into this. Yeah, there's so there's so many there's so many details of this that just boggle the mind. This scene literally doesn't need to exist. They, they, this, this scene doesn't need to happen. And if it does happen, it doesn't need to take place at this like weird, like creepy Chuck E. Cheese place. It could be anywhere. The scene is not important enough to justify the setting. And the setting is not important to the narrative content of the movie. And yet 
the scene takes place in this weird, creepy Chuck E. Cheese, like, undersea life themed pizza place, which is like, I guess it, it, the, the fact that the movie came out in 2017 makes it feel like this weird anachronism where you're just like, what? It, it, it makes this it makes this world feel otherworldly because yeah, in 2002, Chuck E. Cheese were a yeah. little bit more of culturally prevalent. Yeah. You know, a now little it, bit. in 2017, it's like these don't exist anymore. Nobody goes to pizza places with animatronic bands. Except for the Chuck E. Cheese across the street from my house. Shout out, Rampart Chuck E. Cheese. I'm not saying that I don't want to go. I'm just saying that I can't go because it would be strange. Not if you go with me. They'll just mistake me for your son. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Um, And kids don't give a fuck about that kind of stuff anymore. Uh, Tell that to those kids in the Chuck E. Cheese by my house, man. They're running around there screaming, yelling, eating pizza. Yeah. I mean, I guess now that I think about it. Um, Puppets are eternal, I've, my dude. I've been to a couple. I've been to a Chuck E. Cheese a couple times with Ephraim, and he likes it. They're just really hard, yeah. hard, they're, to, they're not hard as to come common, by. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it feels like an anachronism because the movie came out in 2017. But you know, maybe when this was made in 2002, it didn't feel. Like I mean, that. that was the the craziest thing about watching this movie. It, it honestly, it sounds so mean, and I don't really mean it in the way that it's going to come out. But the craziest thing about watching this movie is seeing Sean Patrick Flannery's face pre-plastic surgery. Yeah. Like, he doesn't look like that anymore. Yeah. At all. The casting of Frederick Culler is almost like a stroke of luck or genius because that actor, he's one of those actors that has that sort of, like, look about him where he kind of looks like a kid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, he reminds me of the actor who played um, in the original Children of the Corn movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the Yeah. I don't know that guy's name, but yeah. yes, that or, dude. Yeah. Or, or like a, a Gary Coleman or or an Emmanuel Lewis, where he seems like he has that that kind of, like, look to him where, or, or uh, Andy Milanakis, where it's like he has that look to him where as he gets older, he still looks like a kid. Yeah. And it almost worked perfectly to his advantage because... You know, as we'll talk about later, this movie took a long time to shoot. And so it's kind of crazy because he ends up kind of looking the same throughout the movie to the point where you watch the movie. And there's not a lot of inconsistency in him, even though from scene to scene, it might jump forward several years. So to, to just tie this all back to the original point, this scene happens. It's It just feels very once again, dreamlike. And, you know, the, the scene only, it only it lasts for a couple minutes. And once again, other than the fact that they kind of talk about it and he explains to him how the animatronics work and that kind of ties into the ending, the 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 the, the setting and the animatronic, animatronic band just really have nothing to do with anything that's going on in the movie. And yet, Andrew Getty built these actual working animatronic fucking sea creatures playing music. What do you think those are? I would like to believe... Like, does his ex... Does Andrew Getty's ex-wife have those? Or girlfriend? Whatever she was? They're probably just in that house if they haven't, like, sold it and cleared it out or whatever. Don't you think that... I mean, come on, man. That shit's, that shit's been thrown away. Yeah, probably. That shit... I, unfortunately, I would love to have that giant I mean, I squid. see... I see random shit, like, looking on Facebook Marketplace where, like, I showed you one thing where it was, like, somebody was, like... I have this like red like sequined piano that was from this like music video for an Instagram influencer that I'm just do you want to have this? And I see like weird shit like that all the time where it's like here's some costumes from an episode of Sliders because we you know we live in LA so yeah you look in the marketplace. Why didn't you send me those? Uh, I, 
would have bought those. How the fuck expensive were they? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm only, I'm looking out for you by not showing you these things. Uh, but, it, but were it's, they, were they the, the Cro-Mag Nazi uniforms? It was something like that. I, for, I forget exactly what it was. It might not even have been sliders. That was just like the first thing that popped in my mind. But it was, was it like, Rembrandt's blue shirt? Because if it was yes. Rembrandt's blue shirt and you didn't send that to me, this it podcast was, is over. It was Rembrandt's uh, Afro wig from the flashbacks of him as, like, a, as, as a young, as the yeah. young like R and B singer. Yeah, R.I.P. Um, it was Mel Torme's corpse. <laughs> um. The velvet coffin. Am yes. I right? Yeah. But it, it's it's something like that where like you would look on Facebook Marketplace and then somebody would be selling that and just be like somehow they got a hold of it and they're just like, here's this movie prop animal band and not even know what it's from. Yeah. That's where you would find that. I really want to. I want to. In someone's now. garage. Yeah. All in all. Andrew is believed to have sunk four to possibly six million dollars of his own money into the production of this film. So is six million a lot of money for a movie? Well, it depends on the movie. For a big budget studio film, six million might as well be six pennies. But for a smaller independent film, to put it into perspective, Jordan Peele's smash success 2017 horror thriller Get Out cost 4.5 million to make. And that movie is way more polished, way better made, and has way bigger stars in it. Yeah, I mean, really, it's a million dollars. It's a lot of money. And then multiply that by six. It's a lot of money. Yeah. It's a lot of fucking money. Well, I, I wanted to just to draw the distinction because a lot of times when people talk about movies, they say, like when you watch behind the scenes of things or like documentaries, you always hear people being like, they only gave me $5 million. They gave me nothing or whatever. But this is a whole different world. In this world, that's too much money. Well, it's for not what, even for I, what the movie but is. But even so, like I feel it's like it's kind of a false comparison because Get Out had multiple production companies and a studio backing it. Yeah, this was literally a dude. Yeah, this was like a dude that was he wrote himself a check for four million dollars. Once you watch this movie and ask yourself if it seems like six million dollars was way too much to spend on it, the answer is a resounding hell yes. So. Why was this movie so expensive? Well, it was because of the production's frequent stops and starts due to Andrew's obsessive pursuit of perfecting every tiny little detail of the visuals, as well as his major inexperience as a producer and director. When all was said and done, the film wrapped production in 2008. It took six full years to shoot this movie. To put that into perspective, Avengers Endgame took less than a year to shoot. And if you're listening to this episode in the distant future... Here's a comparison that will make more sense to you. To put that into perspective, Avengers Jedi Angry Birds Episode 8, Dumbledore's Revenge, only took less than a single time token to shoot. God damn it. I literally wrote that joke because I wrote the original in-game thing in there, and I was like, ah, that, I feel like this will date this. And then I just like yeah. couldn't think of a more evergreen example, and so I just wrote that joke instead. This isn't completely unheard of, nor does it necessarily mean that the movie is destined to be bad. The cult experimental David Lynch film Eraserhead infamously took five and a half years to shoot because Lynch kept running out of money and having to halt production. He even once stated that there's a scene where the main character in Eraserhead, played by Jack Nance, at one point steps through a door and then he steps out on the other side of the door in the next scene, having aged 18 months. And that movie has been preserved by the fucking Library of Congress for its cultural importance. But the key element here is that Getty caused the production delays himself, not because of money, but because his obsession with rendering the vision he had in his head was starting to spiral out of control. Although it's also worth noting that part of what contributed to these delays was also working with Michael Berryman and Matthew McGrory, another actor who appeared in the film, who were both suffering from chronic health issues at the time based on their physical disabilities. McGrory passed away in 2005, shortly after filming this scene for the movie. He's a giant, by the way. Yeah. 
He's another actor that you've definitely seen in things. What is, he's in like Big Fish? Is he? Yeah. Big, uh, yeah. He died on August eighth, two thousand five. He was seven feet six inches tall and wore a size twenty nine and a half shoe. He was in Devil's Rejects, House of a Thousand Corpses, Big Fish, Bubble Boy, um, uh, Evil Within, the uh, the Dead Hate the Living. Wow, that's so sad. He was only thirty two years old when he passed away. Wow. But also, I mean, being that size, it's understandable why you would have health issues. You know? Yeah. It's so cool too in the, in the movie though when he like he there's like this dream logic of John is supposed to meet his psychiatrist for lunch at this restaurant. And he walks up to somebody who looks like the psychiatrist from the back, taps him on the shoulder, and Matthew McGrory stands up and turns around and and grabs both of Sean Patrick Flannery's hands and arms with one hand. Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 mesmerizing just because you don't see humans that size very often. And man, it was yeah. Eventually, though, it did become about the money. Midway through production, Andrew had basically hemorrhaged his entire inherited fortune into the movie, and he had no more safety net. He briefly considered asking his dad for a loan to finish the film, but if you remember from our history lesson at the beginning of this episode, the Getty family wasn't exactly known for its generosity towards each other. If old Grandpa Jay wasn't willing to fork out a single penny to keep his grandson from being murdered by Italian kidnappers, the chances of his son, Andrew's dad, falling far enough away from the tree that he'd happily hand over millions of dollars for his son's indie horror film were low. So how did Andrew finish out... The, the six-year protracted production. As we talked about earlier, he basically just went on a diet of just 100% cereal. He he basically shed all human amenities um, and just started living in squalor so that he was not spending any money on anything other than the movie. Another cost-saving measure that might have cut the movie's budget significantly is that Getty rewrote several scenes from the script that originally took place outside at night to instead take place inside of the house where Dennis and John lived in the movie. A majority of this movie takes place inside of this house, which is uh, Andrew Getty's mansion in the Hollywood Hills, to the point where sometimes it just is weird and doesn't make sense. But it was done for a budgetary reason. It's cheaper to shoot inside of a house as opposed to outside because you don't have to pay for permits, you don't have to pay for uh, you know to you know get uh to get electricity out there you don't have to pay for uh the uh, the amount of light to light an outside scene and you don't have to pay to be like ferrying equipment and crews around to different remote locations as an interesting side note andrew lived in the mansion that originally belonged to miklos rosa a hungarian american composer who created the musical scores for ben hur and double indemnity what the fuck right yeah and plus plus literally hundreds of other movies but those are just i just cherry picked those two too is the most like holy shit you lived in that guy's house because of the stop and go production schedule Kohler and Michael Berryman were the only two actors to stick around the entirety of the shooting because of this other actors in the film disappear for long stretches or sometimes disappear altogether no other character besides Dennis's brother John and his girlfriend Lydia appear in more than one or two scenes in the entire movie lending to this surreal dreamlike feeling of stumbling through an unfamiliar world of strangers with changing faces and yeah like I said earlier it really just it whether intentional or not and the evidence points to not, it really lends itself to this. It's similar to that scene in Inception whenever Leonardo DiCaprio Cobb is like trying to show um, uh, Ariadne, uh, her, her character, like the, how the dream world works. And they're sort of walking through this crowd in, in Paris and like people are kind of walking by and they start to sort of as she's changing things about the dream they start to get more hostile towards her it feels similar to that scene but 
way creepier, way more dreamlike, way less coherent. And on top of all this, it's not purposefully done. So it even has this added layer of just like, because it was not done on purpose, it has this organic, randomized quality to it that makes it even more dreamlike and creepy. It also kind of has this feeling like that it feels like he would go to parties. I mean, I don't know this. I'm just speculating. But it feels like he would go to parties, meet someone who was in air quotes, an actor, or was someone who was a bit character actor. Like the guy who they run into on the street who has that shirt that says, fuck you, but he's wearing a, a suit jacket. So you just see the uck and yeah. Yeah. And it's like that oh. guy's from that guy's from fucking uh, that guy's from from Seinfeld. And I guarantee you that that guy wasn't in the original cut of the movie, but that Andrew Getty met him at a party or something and was yeah. just like, you got to be in my movie. Mm-hmm. Also, because of the protracted schedule, actors and seemingly Andrew himself would forget about plot points, character motivations and acting choices in the long months in between shooting. Throughout the movie, there are entire scenes and moments that happen for seemingly no reason or are forgotten by the story. Characters attitudes towards each other will sometimes shift wildly from scene to scene. Dennis's brother John will be loving and paternal towards him in one scene and then immediately in the next scene suddenly come off as resentful towards his existence. And that's the part where it mostly like exhibits itself where it's so inconsistent in like what you can never really get a lock on like how Dennis's brother feels about him because in some scenes he seems really resentful to have to take care of him. And he's talking about wanting to put him in a home. And then in other scenes, just almost contradicting himself, he's like, I can't do that to him. Like, and there's no consistency to it. And, you know, if it was done more coherently, it would be one of two ways. It would be one way or the other. Either the brother would be sort of secretly resentful and kind of wanting to get rid of him. And he would kind of be this asshole character. Or he would be a genuinely nice guy who ends up having this dark secret that we sort of learn about later. But this nice guy who genuinely loves his brother is genuinely altruistically sacrificing his own life and happiness to take care of him. And then his girlfriend is like pressuring him to get rid of him. And then maybe eventually he succumbs to it or whatever. But it doesn't go one way or the other. It just oscillates between the two from scene to scene. Yeah. Yeah. All of these elements, perhaps unintentionally, lend themselves to a very effective dreamlike feeling throughout the movie. There are a lot of movies about dreams and the act of dreaming. Waking Life, Inception, The Science of Sleep, Paprika, Alice in Wonderland, The Nightmare on Elm Street series, but this movie could possibly be the most realistic. And the crazy thing is, it might have been a total accident based on one man's inexperience with making a movie. At one point in the movie, during a nightmare in which Dennis keeps thinking that he's waking up to slowly realize that he's still asleep, to the point where he loses all sense of reality, he says via voiceover narration... I could only open the little dream eyes in my head. Everybody immediately knows what that means. It blows any dreamlike moment from any other film in history out of the water. Um, and that, that, that's just one little element, but there are so many parts of this. And I feel like when you, when it's funny because when somebody tells you, the, there's like that, there's that cliche about how you're not supposed to tell people about your dreams because it's boring, because your dream can never possibly be interesting to another person because. It is a solitary experience that nobody can relate to. And yet I feel like when we watch uh, media about dreams, we're looking for those relatable moments where we're like, oh, yeah, that's that's that happens. That's like I I remember I've that's happened to me in dreams. And uh, this movie hits those moments frequently where it, it rings true to your own experiences with dreaming, at least it did to me. 
Yeah, the, the scene where Michael Berryman is holding a version of Dennis with one hand, and then with the other hand, he's biting off his fingertips yeah. and revealing these little nubbin claw things underneath. Yeah. If this movie had any sort of supervision, somebody would have said that move that moment either needs to be made more subtle or dialed up because it's this weird middle idea. Like, he should pull off his entire arm like upper arm and hand and reveal a giant claw or he should just have a normal hand that's weird and creepy in some way but the the, the fact that it's just his little fingertips just whip 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 and the fact that he's biting it off is just it's not a fully realized thing and that's what makes it more dreamlike yeah the the most impressive feat that this movie accomplishes is it's chock full to the brim of unique ideas stacked on top of each other. And, you know, movies or stories in general, they either, you know, are cynically made to the point where they really don't have any kind of interesting ideas in them. And and that's whenever you get movies that feel very formulaic and they sort of seem the same as every other movie you've seen. And you're like, yeah, I've seen this. This is the same plot of all these other types of movies. Or they, you know, they have like, really concentrated, really effective ideas that stand out and like anchor the film. And you go like, okay, so this movie, it hits these five points that are like really effective and really unique. And then you have certain movies that just like throw like a bunch of shit at the wall. And it's just sort of visual and conceptual cacophony. And like, it's, it's a lot and it's throwing a lot at you, but it's sort of quantity over quality in terms of uh, ideation and conceptualization. Uh, and it's because you can sort of imagine the person behind these three scenarios. So you have the person who's just like, ah, pfft, I'm going to write this bullshit. Or you have the person who's just like, I have these I have these two like really solid ideas and I'm going to build a narrative around them and focus everything on these really solid, really cool ideas. And then you have somebody who's just like, you know, I just want to like, I just want to do like a crazy trippy thing that's going to just have a bunch of moving parts to it. And it's just going to it's going to be like a wall of sound type situation. And even, you know, self-admittedly, uh, you know, I don't as as a writer or as a creator, I don't think I have the uh, conceptual dexterity to um, pack that many ideas into a thing. I think for me, I tend to fall more into that middle thing where I have like, you know, these sort of core conceptual ideas that I want to build around and feel very kind of like focused towards those ideas in the way that the thing is crafted. This movie is a million really unique and really uh, interesting and cool ideas um, all layered on top of each other to the point where it doesn't feel like visual cacophony or conceptual cacophony. It doesn't feel like everything being thrown at a wall, it, it it hits you in waves to this point that's mesmerizing because your sort of mind is reeling about how somebody could have had this many, these, this many ideas and, and, and been able to like load them into this thing so tightly. So that's it then. The movie took six years to finish and then it came out, finally conveying the grand vision that Andrew Getty had obsessed over. Well, what if we told you that we aren't even halfway done with the saga of this film's troubled production and Andrew Getty's tragic life? (laughs) 
After Andrew Getty wrapped production on The Storyteller in 2008, he immediately secluded himself into his mansion to edit the film. This was his vision, goddammit, and he wasn't going to leave it up to someone else to shape it into his final form. Plus, he probably couldn't afford an editor at this point. So, he converted a room in his mansion, the same one used to film a large portion of the movie, into a post-production suite to begin the long, arduous editing and visual effects process. There's something so powerful and tragic about Andrew Getty using his own house, the place where these recurring night terrors probably haunted him for years, as a vessel for ripping his inner psychological demons out of the ether and into the tangible reality by capturing them on film, and then using the same space to try and tame and control the demons through the process of editing the movie. He was using his living space as a psychic trap for his mental illness, his camera was the proton pack. And, I, see, I see what you did yeah. there. And this rings so true with the recurring themes in the movie. One idea you'll see pop up again and again throughout the film, from the themes to the dream sequences to the characters, is the idea of being trapped in your own mind and unable to express something outwardly the way that you feel it inwardly. This presents itself in the labyrinthian dream sequences as well as Getty's proclivity for depicting characters dealing with some kind of extreme mental or physical disability that stunts their effectiveness at conveying their thoughts or emotions. Was this a reflection of Getty's own struggles with feeling like he couldn't express his vision in the film the way it existed in his mind? Almost certainly. And it makes sense why he'd be so meticulous and perfectionist about capturing every frame properly and insisting on owning all of the equipment that was used. He felt like he needed to holistically own and control every aspect of the process in order for the catharsis of exercising his inner demons via filmmaking to feel valid. This is when the drugs started to become a problem. While there isn't a lot of info about Getty's drug abuse before or during the shooting process of the movie, if you watch the film, you'll almost certainly be sure that he was under the influence during production. However, it's not until he locked himself away in his mansion with his then-girlfriend, Lanessa DeJong, that his drug abuse became completely off the rails and intermixing with his ever-worsening obsession over the perfection of his film he starts to lose all sense of reality. This was that nuclear reactor moment, that three-day internet cafe binge moment, the moment when Andrew Getty has become one with his obsession and no longer has any concern for his own personal health or the health of those around him. He shuts himself in his converted post-production suite, spending every waking hour over the course of literal years meticulously creating elaborate in-camera special effects that are honestly truly inspired. The visual effects in this movie are unlike anything you've ever seen in any film. They belie every kind of formalism or reference point to other filmmakers or filmmaking techniques. In a vacuum of inexperience, drug addiction, and obsession, Getty creates visual imagery that is not borrowed from any other film. Doesn't take inspiration from any source. It's completely, uniquely his vision. Like I said kind of earlier in the episode, it really feels like that. The, the, these, the way these visual effects and these special effects play they don't feel contemporary and they don't feel like some kind of throwback to like 80s horror. If anything, the closest thing they remind me of is the like double exposure effects of the horror films of the 30s and 40s. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. They feel they feel like Fritz Lang movies yeah. almost. Because they, a lot of them have this kind of stop motion and or like almost magic trick aspect to them. The movie has a metric ton of issues in the departments of storytelling, acting, editing, problematic depictions of differently abled people, and general coherence. But just taken as a surreal visual expression of the dream state, it's a work of genius. Examples of visual effects in this movie. Uh, this... Th this one, I want to just like, I need to go back and like literally like sit and watch it like frame by frame and really see how it's done. But I think I understand it. Um, and it's really like a simple trick that is, you, I could easily mock it up and do it in After Effects. But it's just something that I would never think to do. This, there's a scene early in the movie, I think it's in the first scene, where uh, uh, Michael Berryman's demon character is like in this dark room. It's part of the dream sequence. 
and like some kind of like gate or like prison door kind of shuts. It casts a like a like a shadow, like a a a, a, a rhythmic like girded shadow. Yeah, like it's 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 basically a a, a cookie. Is that the, what they're called? Pretty sure that's what they're called. Um, it's like a cookie casting a shadow over his face, and it's supposed to look like a gate shutting. And it's like this graded pattern of some kind of gate uh, shadow closing over his face. But as the shadow like moves across him in every little square of the gate, it is like oscillating between two different shots. So it creates this incredibly uh, unsettling visual imagery where... It's almost like a mosaic of a person, and in every other square of the mosaic, it's like a different person. And But as it's moving, they're changing. So it's just this – it's like this impossible to describe unsettling visual imagery that it, it – like I said, it's not even that technically impressive in, in terms of like I already know how I could do it. You, you, you shoot – you shoot two scenes locked off on a on a tripod of whatever you want, the John, uh, Michael Berryman, and then like him wearing a different costume or a different person, or you know the the Dennis character, and you just shoot the scene twice, and then you just throw it into After Effects. You go in, you rotoscope every single little square, and then you just uh, replace them out, and then animate that as the gate closes. It's not technically uh, complicated. But it's something that I just would never have thought of to do myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so much stuff like that in the movie of just kind of like the opening sequence where it's all just morph stuff. You know, I mean, that's like an 80s visual effect that we don't even really use that much anymore. But it's like so orchestrated of, you know, there's a woman standing there and then her face morphs into the exterior of the... Uh, the the big house, the you know the big flop tent or whatever, and then the top flop tent morphs into the desert landscape, and the landscape then has a little cactus that grows out of it, and the cactus grows into a turns into a girl, and the girl's holding a you know a lollipop, and the lollipop turns into a knife, and it's like all of these weird and morphing, all, and it's all in camera. There's yeah. this is not CGI, this is yeah. not some like David Fincher shit. Yeah, this is just like match cutting in-camera visuals and then just using simple uh basic editing tricks yeah to sort of blend staple it all together okay let's do it let's talk about the best thing in the movie the greatest i mean yeah the animatronic band that he made is great it's awesome i wish i owned it so i could just look at it every day yeah but and then we talked about the putting the zipper on the back and then unzipping a person and then climbing into them as a suit so great the hand gag of michael berryman biting off his fingertips awesome all of the various versions of camera tricks where they're they're doing, you know, the one where he tilts the mirror upside down and you see Dennis get trapped in the mirror dimension. Awesome. But the climax of the movie, I'm, I, I, I yelled like three times while I was watching this movie. Like, I yelled once during the band. I was just like, I, I think I yelled, <laughs> oh my fucking God, uh, because I was so excited that... Cause, they're not even like there's not like a hero shot even of the band, but I just knew that he made those things. Yeah. And that's what was so exciting to me. But the f- climax of the movie, and I guess we should have said spoilers at the beginning of this. I don't even know if we should say what the plot element that this relates to, but there's a massive Yeah, we don't we don't need to explain what's happening in order to just comment on the actual what, thing. Like explain what is going on like there's a massive animatronic puppet spider and it's like 
eight feet tall or long. And it's like just total Cronenberg, like fucked up, like human bio, like it's got deformed. a human head. It's got like these awesome puppeteered giant spider legs that are controlled by wires. Like it, it is so fucking cool. Like yeah. it's. And this whole sequence is just like, it's almost like if the movie was way better in a lot of ways, this would have just been like the, the fucking climax that this whole thing was like building to that would just, would have just felt like this fucking, it would have felt like the prestige. It would have yeah. felt like this final masterstroke in terms of just this sequence of the Dennis character finally just, uh, finally just surrendering himself to this darkness and becoming the darkness. And then, setting this whole like Rube Goldberg machine tapestry in this basement of this house where he's telling this story, which I don't, I don't, we don't need to yeah. explain it and I don't want to explain it because I really think you should watch this movie. And it's for free on YouTube. Yeah. And the, so this, this story that he's telling of this reveal of something and he's telling it through this basically puppet show stage play like a like a like an automaton yeah like puppet diorama with just mutilated corpses as the puppets all functioning basically like the animatronic band just rigged up with like wires and pulleys and mechanical things because ultimately it's revealed like oh he's a genius and this whole story plays out with all these corpses that he's slowly been killing throughout the movie turned into these human corpse puppets being controlled by pulley systems and shit. And it once I, I know this is like not a satisfying thing to hear and I've said it a couple times, but it defies explanation. Yeah. You it, have to see it. Yes. Go and watch it and then come listen to the rest of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> he says two hours in. Yeah. So Getty spent seven full years, seven fucking years he spent seven years editing a movie. I mean, I, so I spent for Action Hospital 2, I spent probably, at this point I don't even know because I've kind of blocked it out, but if you haven't read it, I make a series of comics called Action Hospital and each book is roughly 200 something pages. But even that, but, like, it's supposed to take that long. Yeah, but I mean, editing I was, a movie is not supposed to take seven years. Well, I just mean by in the no, slightest. no, it's not. But I, I only bring it up because for Action Hospital two, for Action Hospital one, the whole shtick is it's like eighteen interconnected <coughs> short stories that are all drawn by different artists, and whenever the artists, uh, whenever they're always they're paired with a character, so whenever that character shows up, the artist draws them on the pages. It took like four years to get all that book done because it was basically like having to rope my friends into coming over and eating pizza and drawing all these pages and. It was a fun project, but four years was a little bit too long. So for the second volume, I was like, oh, I'll do something really stupid, but I'll do it myself. Like, what if the story all takes place in one day? And what if the middle 200 pages of the book are all one giant fight sequence where there's a background that as you turn the pages, the background moves and the characters fight down a hallway, almost like an animated flip book or something. Yeah. So I spent probably about six, five months drawing that whole sequence and i i had to draw everything twice but i by the end of that probably six months of drawing i mean i probably did 70 11 by 17 you know 22 by 17 massive demon heads with a shark in a business suit fighting each other 
And I thought that was going to be really funny in the beginning of it. By the end of it, oh my god, I was like, I was like, I never want to draw these characters ever (laughs) a fucking again. And I mean that, but yeah, it it took me probably about two years to draw the whole book, and it 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 fucking destroyed me. Like by the end of it, my wrist was clicking. I had to take like five, six months off drawing just to try and let my hand heal. Um, uh, If you're not familiar with the way I draw, it's very detailed, and there's a lot of dumb shit, but. I can't imagine the pain of spending seven years. I mean, I, I spent two years on that thing. It wasn't seven years in one stage of it either. It was two years theoretically moving through it, you know, where you spend six months penciling it. You spent six and months. And you're doing other things too. Yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. you're like doing other books. You're watching movies. You're doing uh, work to pay the bills. Yeah. This is seven years of from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, I'm editing this movie for seven straight years. And I have no other responsibilities. I have no other thing I'm doing except like fighting with my girlfriend. Oof. It's just so dark. Yeah. So it it's, almost, a- it's almost like it wouldn't have taken seven years if he had any sort of responsibilities. You yeah. know what I mean, it's the infinite canvas problem that yeah. I was talking about earlier. Like it's 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 dangerous. I mean, I I say that a lot to people of like, you know, having an infinite canvas is dangerous because people ask me like, you know, creative questions or whatever. But in this case, it literally is dangerous. Like this fucking killed him. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we're going to touch on it in just a second, but you can even see where that's the truth because, you know, you could say like, oh, well, he did it, but it wasn't to the specifications of Andrew Getty's vision or whatever. But once he ends up passing away and his friend takes it over, he finishes it in like a month. Yeah. Like he's just like done. Yep. It's like, it's been, I'm not, this isn't going to kill me. Yeah. Uh, so yes, yeah, so it, it took him seven years. He spent, he worked on this for seven years um, in his, locked in his house, creating these effects and editing the movie. At a certain point, he was said to be taking 3.5 grams of meth per day. I have no idea how much meth that is. I think it's a lot. Okay. I think it's like a scarily high amount. Okay. Because um, a gram doesn't sound like a lot to me, but I don't know anything about drugs. Yeah, I think like... I don't know anything about drugs either. I'm literally just drafting off of like, I feel like things I've heard in movies, but I feel like in the terms of like marijuana and like softer drugs, like a gram of it is not a lot, but in terms of like really hard, really addictive drug, even like maybe Coke is like a gram is not that much. But when it comes to like stuff like crack and especially like heroin or meth, I think it's like a shitload. Oh, wow. All right. Well, you should write in and teach us about drugs, internet. Yes. Um, Andrew at deepcutspod.com. Me, for specifically. Throughout this process, the cops were called to check on the house 31 times because of reports from the neighbors of strange, disturbing noises coming from inside. This sounds ominous, but I feel like that could have just been him fucking editing the movie and just playing it really loud. <laughs> yeah, volume. skate, 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 skate. Um, Getty and his girlfriend would get into frequent, loud, violent, drug-fueled fights. Getty was eventually ordered by his doctor to not engage in any kind of heated arguments because of his critically poor blood pressure. And he eventually broke up with Lanessa and even filed a restraining order against her. And still, all the while, he worked on the storyteller, slowly pushing it closer and closer to being finished, but still completely lost in the weeds of obsessing over every minute detail. He'd completely isolated himself from all of his friends and family. He didn't even have Lanessa around, and he was still slamming 3.5 grams of meth a day. I'm, I'm curious what working on editing this every day actually means. Does that mean he opens up Premiere and then looks at it and then goes, not today, and closes it? 
Or does that mean he's spending eight hours a day fuck, frame fucking it? Like, what does that mean? I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I'm speculating, but I don't think it was necessarily him actually like in the edit, like messing around with the cut and moving clips around in Premiere or whatever. I think it was him building and shooting and reshooting and reshooting these practical uh, in-camera effects. Because a lot of the stuff, he was sort of like shooting things, like shooting plate shots and shooting like visual effects on like green screens to like composite into the footage. And I think it was a lot of him like reshooting and reshooting and reshooting those. And in like, you know, like we were talking about earlier with like all the match cuts and the way that things would like sort of flow into each other and the way that like somebody like a, a woman's face turns into a carnival ride and all these things like just getting the composition of that and like exactly perfect so that it seamlessly transitioned between all these different things. I think it was a lot of that. The few people he hadn't completely alienated himself from were growing more and more worried about him day by day, but he didn't care. He cared about that one singular moment, that one pinprick on the temporal map three clicks ahead when he'd finally squeeze all the demons out of his head like a nasty cyst that he'd ignored for far too long trap them in the frames of his film, and project them on screens for all the world to see. They'd be our problem now, not his. But I'm sure he figured the entirety of the human population could better shoulder the burden together as opposed to him trying to keep them contained in his one single mind. Maybe these demons, diluted that thinly across so many million brains, could actually bring us happiness. But none of this could happen until he was done, until the last frame was put perfectly in place. Until then, he needed to keep going, and in order to keep going, he needed to keep doing his 3.5 grams of meth per day. But it didn't matter anymore because he was almost done. He was almost in the clear. On March 31st, 2015, seven years after he'd first begun the editing process for The Storyteller, Andrew Getty's former girlfriend, Lanessa, entered his mansion in the Hollywood Hills and found him dead in his bathroom. He was completely naked and surrounded by glass pipes. After an autopsy, the Los Angeles coroner ruled it as an accidental death caused by a combination of extreme drug and alcohol abuse, heart disease, and internal bleeding. He was 47 years old. He'd come so close, but he was never able to reach the logical conclusion of his obsession. He'd come a long way, but he died before finishing his film, The Storyteller. And in a way, that movie was never finished. We'll never see the platonic ideal of Andrew Getty's perfect film, and so we'll never see the intended masterwork of caging those inner demons on the big screen. And when you watch the movie, you see flashes here and there that heavily suggest that he might have been able to pull it off. After his death, Getty's friend and producer of the film, Michael Luceri, decided to take on the mantle and finish the movie. He'd spent the next several months tying up all the editing loose ends for the film. One strange thing he noticed while finishing the edit was that Getty had color-corrected all of the footage before starting to edit the movie together. If you don't know, color correction is a process in editing a film where you add different effects such as contrast and color tweaks to raw footage in order to give it its final polished look. And this process is never done before a movie is edited together because the significant amount of processing power the effects use on your computer will needlessly slow down your editing software. And it's universally done as the final step before a movie is finished. Editing the footage in this way could have possibly, in the grand scheme of things, added hundreds of hours, if not possibly years, onto the time it took Getty to edit this film. And it just goes to show how his lack of experience and complete ignorance of filmmaking was able to simultaneously produce strokes of genius, such as his meticulous and singular visual effects, but also lead to simple, obvious mistakes that only made the process harder for himself. I'm not sure what this says about the artistic process. After Luceri was done editing the movie, and possibly on the strength of the tragic story behind the making of the film, he was able to sell it to a distributor called Vision Films. It was retitled The Evil Within because... Let's be honest, though The Storyteller is a very fitting title for the movie once you've seen it, and it fits perfectly into Getty's vision, 
It's a terrible title for a low-budget horror movie in a market where a good title and a cover can guarantee a lot of sales and streams. It was quietly released on February 26th, 2017, on DVD and video on demand. Nobody really noticed or cared. It still just sits, nondescript, next to hundreds of other generic made-for-DVD horror films that were probably shot in three days with zero effort put into them. Ironically, it might have stuck out more and been more intriguing to casual viewers scrolling through a list of movies to stream if it had a more irregular and abstract name like The Storyteller. When all is said and done, from the time they went into production in 2002 to the time it was released, the movie took 15 years to make. 20 years if you count the five years Andrew Getty said it took him to write the script. You can still watch it right now for free if you have Amazon Prime. This episode is not brought to you by Amazon Prime. It's also on YouTube. Yes. For free. It's really sad when you think about it, that the entire purpose of this movie was for Andrew Getty to see a vision through from start to finish and render every single aspect of it perfectly, only to die right before it was finished and have it quickly cauterized at all the loose ends and slapped onto Amazon by his well-intentioned friend. I'd like to think that Andrew Getty would be happy with the outcome of this movie, but something in the back of my mind tells me that he wouldn't. But it seemed like Getty was destined or doomed to follow this path from the very beginning. The Getty Curse. Aside from a few notable exceptions, most men in his family seem to die young in around very troubling circumstances. They all seem to be haunted by some invisible thing that latches onto them from birth. Is generational trauma real? Can the sins, grief, and tragedy of your ancestors follow you through your DNA? Was the ripple effect of J. Paul Getty Sr.'s abhorrent and callous cruelty towards his grandson so strong that it knocked Andrew Getty off of his life's orbital path, and the only way he felt like he could stabilize himself was to fixate on one singular goal at all costs? And is that the root of all obsession? Like when they say that to keep yourself from getting dizzy while spinning, you need to fix your gaze on one point around you. Is obsession just some people's way of course correcting after an unseen force sends them spinning out of control? I don't know the answer to any of that, but that animatronic octopus that plays the drums is fucking awesome. I completely agree. One aspect of this that we haven't talked about yet, which I just need to bring up during our discussion time, our cool down, how fucking weird is that part where they go into the ice cream store and the the model girl goes he's like nice to see you susan and she's like of course it is i'm extremely hot the literal verbatim so let's just go into it so the verbatim thing she says is oh my god you literally wrote yeah. the quote down <laughs> he says he says uh where the fuck is it yes yeah, so he says of nice, course to see it's you. nice to see me uh i'm outlandishly hot <laughs> so yeah so once again, one of the characters that's literally in two scenes because he goes and sees her at the ice cream place and then later on he comes back and kills, kills her. her. It's just this blonde ice cream shop clerk yep. that he has a crush on. Yep. And when he first is introduced to him, he, she says this. He says, like, it's nice to see you. And she says this line of dialogue. That's not a good line. But yeah. Or the right performer can save it, you know? It like they- feels like an attempt at, like, a Joss Whedon-type line. Yeah. But that just come... It, number one, the rest of the movie doesn't have that tone. Mm-hmm. And also, she doesn't ex- execute it properly. So it's just like, what the fuck? That, that was so stilted and weird. Yeah, it's very strange. But I loved it. I also loved... The part where they're like driving down the street and they're talking about how tired they are, uh, Sean Patrick Flannery and, and Dina Meyer, they're talking about how how tired they are. So they're like, let's go to the ice cream shop and get coffee. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. And then and, they, it's, and it's funny because there's like there's only like three or four points in the story where it veers into like 
you know, I've seen people online comparing it to The Room and comparing it to Troll 2 and these kind of like notoriously bad movies. This movie's not that. Like, it's not... Is it a good movie? Fuck no. It's really weirdly made and very amateurish in some aspects. But it's it's not The Room. Like, The Room is made by a fucking, like, convicted felon with a camera. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, like it's, I mean, The Room and then... Uh, what is that other notoriously bad movie? Uh, there's a lot of them. That's it's it's just it's like kind of in the same vein as the room. Uh, these movies are created by you know like Tommy Wiseau is just this guy who's like I want to be a famous director. I want to be the next Woody Allen, and it's like this flim flam artist who just like is like fake it till you make it, thinking that he's doing it better than he's actually doing it, just unself aware that he really sucks and thinking that he's like doing well at like faking it until he makes it. And ultimately he's just trying to get his foot in the door. That's not Andrew Getty at all. Andrew Getty. I mean, yeah, I think of, of eventually he wanted to be recognized as a filmmaker, but this was all about just accomplishing some kind of vision that he had. It's, it's, it's control. It's like, yeah. I feel, uh, I feel crazy when I'm dreaming. This sucks. I'm in pain. The only way I can take back that control is by making this thing and like crystallizing the, the that pain into art. Yeah. And it you make it you make it real so you can stab it. Yeah, exactly. Which should be the slogan for our show. Make it real so you can stab it. It's done. Yeah. I'm already updating the Wix site. <laughs> yeah, I mean Yo, I'm here making this dope Wix website. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Can't wait till we're doing those commercials. Yeah, no shit. Um, it's you know, it's funny because I feel like we've we've kind of talked about most of the aspects of the movie, like the acting, the visual effects, the plot, and the script, the mentally handicapped, you know, problematic stuff, um, the, the weird surreality of it. You know, it, it it just I know we've both said it, but it just it really defies explanation because. Listening to us talk, this movie sounds amazing, and it is, but not for the reasons that you think it's amazing. Like, yeah. watching the movie, it's uneven, clunky, it's amateurish, it feels like a high school kid made a movie and somehow convinced movie stars to be in it, but also had a real deep well of personal trauma that he was pulling from. And if a different guy made it, it would be The Room. Yeah, yeah. And it almost is The Room. Yeah. Like, it narrowly skirts that. But it's totally not. It's another it's another beast of I love I love bootleg movies. I love, you know, any time someone I love sincerity. I love that. The things I look for usually in art is I love sincerity and I love ambition. I love somebody who's really trying to do a thing, whatever that thing is. You know, that's that's why I, I always I find myself shitting on creators or, you know, cartoonists or actors or whatever other creative people that you can tell they're doing good work, but they're they're there at like 60 percent of their capabilities. I would rather see somebody who can't draw at all, but is just going ham on those pages and really, really trying than watch Martin Scorsese or uh, Al Pacino phone it in. Yeah. Like. Uh uh, a a a a grand uh, a friend's grandpa uh, years ago, like this is probably like at this point eight years ago, um, said something one time when I was at their house, and uh, I don't think that he meant for it to have any. I, I don't think he meant for it to be a significant thing to say. I certainly don't think that he 
realized or intended for it to have any kind of impact on me or anybody, but it stuck with me and I still, it, 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 it was such a simple thing to say and it just so resonated with me that it just stuck for me forever. And I don't even remember the context of what was happening, but he said, if it's okay, it's no good. And that like blew my mind. Like just the, 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 the simplistic, the, the simplicity and the just direct crystallization of that concept. It just stuck with me forever. Yeah. I completely relate. I would much rather like, I, I'm a big defender of Prometheus. I know a lot of people hate that movie. But I love Prometheus because that movie is trying to do a thing. Yeah. And, I mean, my favorite Alien movie, I mean, I don't know if it's really my favorite, but let's put it this way. My favorite Alien sequel, if it's not one of the first two, is Alien Covenant. I fucking love that movie. Most people hate it. They All, all they can see are the fact that the characters are kind of goofy and the scene construction is kind of weird. But that movie is like a metatextual treatise on how your creativity will eventually subsume you and the things that you create will inevitably end you. It's Ridley Scott meditating on how his brother's life was spent making art and ultimately it was meaningless because he fucking died of a brain tumor. Yeah. Like it's him grappling with the the futility and also the moral imperative to create art and that dichotomy. He's it's it's all about the kind of metatextual arc of the alien franchise. You know, you have these two robots uh, Walter and David, who are warring for the soul of the movie, which is a synecdoche for the Alien franchise as a whole, and they're named after David Geiler and Walter Hill, the two producers who took control of the franchise after Ridley Scott left. There's all these religious themes because, you know, obviously Ridley Scott is a religious person, and in a modern context, movies are our, like, cathedral to our own, you know, cultural mores. Like, I just... We could do a whole episode just on Alien Covenant um, and its failures in some respects, but its successes in others. And I feel exactly the same way about this movie. Like, it's a noble failure, except almost in the reverse. It's a failed success or something or like like it's a it's Ridley Scott for Alien Covenant had 200 fucking million dollars. Yeah. This guy had six million dollars that he <laughs> starved himself and became a meth addict to try and birth into a film. And I just, I love it so much. It's so fucking crazy that he went this far. Like the commitment, like that sincerity, ambition, and commitment. Those are the things that usually I latch onto in art. And man, all three of them are on display. Craft, not so much. Skill, mm-mm, not there. Actual, like, genuine um, innovation, no, but man, the fucking, the, the, the supreme dedication is, it's in every fucking frame, even the ones that don't make any sense, like Dennis running in place in a fucking kitchen. Yeah. And something that literally just occurred to me while you were saying that, uh, that I hadn't thought of before, uh, you know, talking about generational trauma or maybe genetic trauma, there is something supremely fascinating about the fact that and this is tying this all together from the beginning of the episode to now about the fact that John Paul Getty III was kidnapped. He was held, he was locked, held captive inside of a cave for months on end. He be, And then he was subjected to abject torture. He ended up becoming uh, dependent, addicted to 
uh, alcohol and penicillin. And, uh, you know, he, he did, he didn't die in the cave, but he kind of died in the cave. Yeah. And Andrew Getty ended up paralleling that subjecting himself to his own self-imposed seclusion in the cave of his house where he became cripplingly addicted to a substance that ended up ultimately killing him. This has been Deep Cuts. I'm Dave Baker. <laughs> and I'm Andrew Price. You can find me online at www.heydavebaker.com. And you can find me in a cave in Italy, uh, just knocking back some brandies. And also at dapricewrites.com. Thanks for listening. I think that might be my favorite. This has been Deep Cuts. <laughs> that was a really good one. I never quite expected it. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.